Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I'm Martin Rogers. In a very fortunate piece of timing, we are sitting here today to talk about immigration on the day that the latest immigration figures have come out, showing all-time records have been broken for uh, net migration into this country. To talk about this most divisive and polarising of issues, which... As, as Martin mentioned, obviously, we've had a day of um, some interesting migration figures. I wonder if we could start with what's actually happening um, happening with them. Um, so uh, I wonder, Sophie, could you give us a bit of a, a recap on, on recent past and what we saw today? Sure. So the today's statistics were actually um, sort of we found that actually net migration had been overestimated or have been it was presumed that the figures that we were going to see today were going to be a lot higher and um, than figures as high as sort of a net migration of a million seven hundred thousand people. And in the end, it's not actually been that high. And the ONS has actually um, sort of reflected on its uh, sort of projection that it issued. Uh, a few months ago, about six months ago. So we've actually seen a small drop in net migration compared to figure that we saw just a few months ago. What we still have seen, though, is that migration has changed since uh, the government introduced its new points-based system and its new visa system for entry to the country. So we have seen a shift from e- primarily EU migration to non-EU migration. And the people who are coming here work in very specific sectors, things like IT, um, professional services, NHS, um, because under the government's new scheme, they have to meet um, a certain uh, visa sort of prescription, a certain salary requirement and so on. And so we've seen a shift from sort of work in maybe what you would deem low skill sectors, migration to work in those sectors to more uh, high skill professionalised sectors. And as a result, a shift in migration patterns to different parts of the country than we've seen before. That's interesting on a number of counts. So so one is the figure today to look it up is just over 600,000, which... Am I right in saying that's comparatively high still compared to, say, where we were um, around about 2015-16 when migration was a very topical issue? So I think we're in, um, sort of, I mean, I mean, I know we'll get onto this later, but we're in a kind of weird position where actually, sort of, number-wise, in raw numbers, migration is higher still than it ever was before or during the referendum. Last year's figures were still uh, the highest on record, and this is only a small dip from that. So, you know, it's not been a huge change um, in the space of a few months. Um, But then at the same time, we've sort of seen that it hasn't dominated news in necessarily the same way. So we are in that weird juxtaposition of numbers have actually gone up despite immigration being such a big issue during the referendum campaign. And someone not following it closely would be forgiven for thinking, well, hold on, we we made changes to migration, as you mentioned, to from Europe. We made it harder for people to come here from Europe, ended free movement of labour, went to a points-based system. Wouldn't all that, you'd expect it to bring migration down? So why is it now higher? It's quite interesting because if you look back on the commitments that, you know, the Vote Leave campaign, for example, made during the referendum, they actually worded their promises very carefully they never actually promised any cut or reduction in numbers they promised reform to the system itself so that was never anything that you know sort of the leave campaign particularly made any big commitments on i think people have got that idea because the idea of setting a target or you know reducing net migration to the hundreds of thousands was such a dominant issue uh, in the early 2010s particularly under david cameron's government but it was never actually a promise that was made by the vote leave campaign so though I think restrictions on migration have become more stringent, you need to meet, you know, salary quota, you need to have a sponsorship, a job waiting in the UK. Um, 
it's not actually done very much to change numbers overall. It's more just shifted the type of migration that's coming to the UK. Yeah, that is interesting. And we might get into it later, but I wonder what different voters expected or, or prioritised. Um, is this or one thing I, I've read in the commentaries that is people saying this is a little bit exceptional. So you obviously got a situation in Ukraine uh, and Hong Kong, um, not, not so much immediately, but you know, going back a few months and maybe a year or so. Um, as well as the kind of aftermath of COVID. So is this is this the new normal or do you expect that figures will kind of even out a bit, say, in the next few years, obviously depending what happens with the geopolitics? Yeah, I think obviously, you know, you never quite know what's around the corner that might affect um, migration flows. But as you said, I think these figures are sort of high regardless. And I think the fact that we've seen a slight dip from the figures that were released six months ago shows that we are going to either see sort of migration stabilise or continue to drop. Um, so, yeah, I think these are sort of objectively quite high figures because of uh, the arrival of people from Hong Kong, from Ukraine, um, and just also, you know, we've opened uh, entry to the country to a, a new group of people in a way and um, with the visa system. So there's people who are more willing to try and use that system uh, to enter, come and work and live here. Um, you know, it's sort of the novelty of it, if that makes sense. And um, so I think as things start to calm down, as we recover from COVID um, and as sort of the migration patterns that have resulted from Hong Kong and Ukraine calm down, we will begin to see kind of a, a petering off or a steadying off uh, of migration numbers. Maybe some of the political angst, and I suppose that that angst is more on the right on the left, we, as we may get to talk about, maybe some of that angst will be will be eased as um, uh, it figures even out. Um I also wanted to ask you a bit about the impacts of migration. I, I remember following this debate in, the, as I say, the 2015-16s, and there was lots of concern about things such as pressure on public services, pressure on wages from low-skilled, particularly around low-skilled workers. Um, but often expert opinion or economics opinion tended to say, well, that those concerns were misguided. Is that still, to your knowledge, the kind of prevailing view that that this is more a political issue than a policy issue. Is that, is, that, is that fair or is it more complicated? To an extent, yeah, I think um, Professor Rob Ford talks about this quite a bit and he kind of puts it forward that there is essentially a trade-off between you know people being able to come to the UK to work in sectors like the NHS, like social care that we deem to be under pressure. And, you know, they may have to use that themselves the longer that they stay here, but they are coming to sort of relieve those pressures initially. So there's that trade off between people come to the UK to fill in vacancies and, you know, they will then need to send their kids to school or use local services, whatever it is. But I think the thing that's sort of interesting to look at post-referendum and as a result of the migration flows that we've seen is that Firstly, a lot of the migration to the UK is short term at the minute. It's, you know, people like students doing short term degrees or masters who are not going to stay in the long for the long term in the UK afterwards and, you know, make use of local public services. The other thing is that a lot of these um, people who are coming to the UK under the migration scheme because of the professional requirements of the scheme itself are going to places that tend to be bigger, better resourced, you know, major cities, for example, um, where their impact is maybe not quite felt in the same way as it was when we had maybe low-skilled, low-wage workers coming from the European Union to work in small towns and cities uh, where their presence was then sort of really felt when it comes to the use of public services and the makeup of them. So I think, you know, it's been offset a bit by that shift in migration patterns. 
Brilliant, thanks. And I think this is a, a good chance to move on to um, some of the public views because you talked there about the different potential impacts in different places, towns versus cities. So can you please provide some sort of context to the recent history of immigration in the UK and relatedly the public's view of it? Because the reason I wanted to do this uh, podcast is to follow up on a piece that you wrote on what the public thinks on immigration. Yeah, so I think a lot of the discourse that we've kind of had on immigration in recent years has definitely been shaped by the referendum and the way that that issue was presented then. You know, it was a big issue um, during that campaign. During that campaign, there was a release of some data from the ONS, like there was today, which really sort of made the official leave campaign shift its focus to net migration. And that was building on tension, have been in the UK over the issue since, you know, the Blair government decided to not limit accession from uh, eight countries from the EU in 2004. Um, and so we did sort of see this pattern of, as net migration rose, public concern on the issue did as well. They kind of tracked each other. And that meant that the dominant narrative in British politics for a long time revolved around cutting numbers. So, you know, I don't know if anyone had one of those red Labour mugs that promised to cut immigration or, you know, you hear Cameron talking about reducing net migration to the hundreds of thousands, as I mentioned earlier. But actually, since the referendum, even before the referendum, actually, um, we carried on seeing this gradual positive shift in attitudes and that's across all demographic groups so regardless of age gender voting pattern class socioeconomic status education whatever um the british public has just generally become more positive on uh, the issue so we've seen voters become more likely to say that migration uh, has had a positive impact on the uk than a negative one in cultural and economic terms and actually people saying that they would prefer numbers to either be maintained or increased as opposed to reduced. And I think there's kind of a few reasons for that. I think the first one is the Brexit vote and the idea that voting to leave the EU and then free movement has, you know, led to control over the system. The government has more control over who has come to the country um, and we have a more kind of uh, pragmatic system, that more pragmatic than free movement anyway. The composition of net migration has changed, like I've said, so it's a very different type of migration than we were used to seeing. We're not seeing, you know, low-skill, low-wage workers go to small towns in the north. We're actually seeing kind of non-Europeans in professional sectors go to work in cities like London. And I think the actual biggest reason for this shift in a lot of ways is COVID, actually. Um, I think that really made a lot of people reconsider how they saw migration and the contribution of migrants who come to work in key sectors like social care or haulage or agriculture whatever it is and that's all kind of added up to mean that public opinion on immigration has kind of shifted in this positive direction we're in a lot different of a place than we were in 2015 when we talk about this issue great thank you so can you tell us what the public think about immigration at the moment in general so specifically or in particular do people think that we should have more or less? And what do people think now and what have they thought in the, in the recent past? You kind of touched on it there, but I feel like there's a, there's a bit more uh, to kind of uncover. So, you know, it's, it's not true to say, I think, that a majority of the public wants more migration. We're not at that stage yet. We We do sort of see that if you ask people, you know, 
how what they think levels of migration have been over the ne- last 10 years. Sorry, they do generally still tend to think that it's been too high. But we did see last year that actually when you kind of add the stats together, more people favour maintaining or even increasing migration than favour reductions. And that's despite the fact that we've seen net migration reach those record levels in the last few months. And we don't think that's to say that voters aren't still concerned about, you know, government policy on this issue or the amount of people coming into the country but actually on quite a wide range of measures hostility to immigration is a lot lower than it used to be um and you know as i was saying that might be because there's been stricter controls on immigration um because a lot of the shift in positive attitudes is conditional on the idea that you know the public think we have a fair transparent uh system you know if they don't think that system's being properly enforced you know if they're seeing pictures of small boats coming um over the channel for example on news or social media or whatever their attitudes kind of become less positive but what we see actually is that the issue for the public isn't really numbers it's control and it's there being kind of this fair efficient structure in place more than just kind of an arbitrary cut to numbers or an arbitrary net migration target there seems to be a quite active debate about this at the moment. Um, and as you've set out, I think lots of people are making the case that the public have become much more liberal in, on immigration since, you know, circa 2015. However, there is a body of view, and we spoke to Professor Matt Goodwin the other day, who's obviously got a new book out, and we talked to him about that. But um, uh, his argument to us, and I'll put it back to you, is that the public haven't quite cottoned on yet to the fact that immigration is higher and arguably rising or, or got, has got to a high point since Brexit, and that he says when they do, the anxiety will come back, and it's it's somewhat a ticking time bomb. What's your response to that that line of pushback? You know, I I think maybe um, Matthew Goodwin's argument would be, if I understand it correctly, that you know the public's not necessarily become more liberal; they just don't understand, or they're not aware of the numbers, or you know they don't they haven't conceptualised what those numbers are yet. And I think the first thing I would say is that I don't even think it's necessarily that voters have become more liberal. I do think that is part of it. And I do think we are seeing this sort of structural generational shift towards a public that is just kind of as a foundation, more liberal on on, on migration. Um, But I do think they've become more pragmatic. And I think that kind of touches on what I was saying about how I think COVID has had such a big influence on how people think about immigration. You know, we've seen voters in the last few years have become much more likely to see migration as a solution to things like labour shortages, job vacancies, as driving economic growth, and not even just in kinds of these high-skilled professional jobs, but in sectors like social care, like haulage, like fruit picking, you know, they are really aware of kinds of the essentialness of those fields, if that makes sense. Um, But in terms of the numbers specifically, I think particularly in recent days with this latest release of data, you know, the public have had every opportunity to realise how high the numbers are. You know, they've been all over the papers constantly. Those predictions of one million have been on, you know, Radio 4, on the news or whatever, consistently over the last few days. And, you know, there might be a lag effect, of course. There might be the public might cotton onto this a bit more in a few weeks' time, in a few months' time at the next election. But actually, the public are quite aware that migration has gone up. When you ask them, they do show an awareness of that fact. But we just don't see that sort of straightforward correlation between numbers of concern anymore in the same way that we did in 2015, as long as that element of control is being fulfilled. And I think post-Brexit, you know, 
a lot of people do feel it is. You got there's not really that argument anymore that the government doesn't have control over the people who are coming into the country or the numbers or the type of people. Because, you know, we have seen the reforms to that migration system. And so I think that is a big part of why the argument for cutting numbers and so on is just not part of the mainstream argument anymore. It's about the system that's in place and not the numbers. And that is what fundamentally matters to voters. I, I think what you're saying goes to the heart of it, actually, um, because there is, you know, again, a debate about some people like Goodwin, I think, think Goodwin. that migration driven by cultural anxiety. Um, rather than the kind of control, practical concern type things, concern over housing or school places. Um, and it sounds like what you're what you're saying is that it's more the practical concerns. And if you can show that they're met, people are more relaxed. Is that do you think that's right? And, and other people will say, oh, it's a bit more complicated. Sometimes people will present with one kind of concern, but they mean another kind of concern and vice versa. So 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 how would you unpick that? I think that's definitely true and you know as with all survey data or public opinion data you rely in large part on a good question design and b people being fundamentally honest when they're responding so you know there is always that element of doubt particularly on something like immigration where people might be you know self-conscious about how they answer and you know very sort of guarded with the type of language they use you know there is always that question I think of to what extent are people being honest but realistically based on the data we've got we do see that you know the public are just becoming more generally liberal on these issues and actually it's not just you know I talked about them being about voters kind of being more pragmatic but aside from that on things like the cultural impact they've actually become much more likely to say that migration to the UK has you know a positive impact on uh, the country and even if you look at some data that came out um, from the World Values Survey, um, which is run out of the Policy Institute at King's College, uh, it shows, that shows that, you know, compared to a lot of other countries, not just in Europe, but actually across kind of the wider world, the UK has some of the most positive attitudes to immigration, um, much more so than, and these have kind of developed and become more positive in a much shorter space of time than a lot of other countries. So, you know, I, I do think we're just seeing this wider uh change where this issue is discussed with a lot less anxiety um obviously you can't predict how long that will continue for but for the time being uh it, it just doesn't seem that we discuss this in the same way as we did in 2015 by talking about you know pressure on legal services and so on it's just not quite the same framing now i think the difference is you know on a legal migration specifically you know illegal migration small boats that kind of issue that has kind of shot up in importance amongst voters i think there was some data from public first which showed it was a top four issue for the majority of the public in march um but particularly conservative voters and particularly 29 conservative voters 2019 conservative voters sorry so you know there is a, there is a, a core of the public who this does still matter to but overall and you know i keep going on about it but i think it does tie into that idea of control the reason why illegal migration has really captured public attention is because it brings doubt into people's minds of whether the rules for entry in the uk are being properly enforced for legal migration that's actually a separate issue where salience is much lower than it has been for a long time so that's a perfect opportunity to, to dig into this issue of small boats a little bit more so it, how do the public see the the issue of small boats? Is it as divisive as it's sometimes made out to be? I think it's it's 
an interesting topic because it's one of those issues that animates it, it strongly animates a small portion of voters and it's particularly a uh, conservative a, a sort of a core of conservative voters essentially um and i think rob ford who's got two shouts out from me actually so he was me on um did some work kind of looking at the type of voters that this issue animates and it's such a small percentage of an already small percentage of voters if that makes sense so you know there is definitely public concern about this but it's concentrated in quite some small sectors um of the british electorate and so that does raise questions on whether actually going all out on this issue particularly if it's questionable if you can actually deliver on it i.e can you actually stop the boots whether that's actually such a great electoral strategy when you're 15 percent you know behind in the polls because it is a pretty small part of um the british electorate that are actually quite animated about this issue and you you touched on it briefly already but I'd just like to hear a little bit more how the UK essentially compares. How do our views as a country over here on immigration compare to to other countries beyond what you've sort of touched on with it already? Um, So actually, I think overall, we see that the UK um, has some of the most positive attitudes on immigration in Europe and the wider world. You know, we're um, of the countries surveyed in the World Values Survey, uh, which I think is about 20 countries, um, 20 plus, with the least likely to say that the government should place, you know, strict limits on the number of people who can come to the UK, uh, with the second most likely to think that migrants make an, an important economic contribution to the country. Um, and, you know, over well over half, I think about 70% think that immigration strengthens our cultural diversity. On things like that, we come pretty close to the top, if not the top. Um, of the rankings when it comes to kind of how positive and how liberal our views are on migration. But I think actually the starkest thing comes out of data like that is it's the shift, the speed of the shift from just 10, 15 years ago. So most countries across the world, particularly since COVID, have seen this kind of gradual liberal shift on immigration and migration. But it's the speed of the UK shift that's most surprising. So, you know, I think something 65% of voters thought that if jobs are scarce in the UK, then British citizens or people who are born here should be prioritised for jobs. But that's halved in just over 10 years to under 30% of people. You know, that's just, I think, an example of kind of how quickly our attitudes have liberalised on this. Um, and it's pretty, I think it would be interesting to look into what is UK specific that induced that kind of speed of change. Well, I was actually going to ask you that as a follow-up question. There's one thing that looks glaringly obvious that's happened in the UK and nowhere else, which, of course, is Brexit. So is there an irony here that Brexit, which was um, supported arguably on the basis of wanting to reduce migration, has somehow made us more liberal on migration? And that is true, partly because, you know, a lot of people, when it comes to migration, see, it, you know, if that was the key issue that they voted on, voted leave on anyway their side won and the government has made reforms you know it's introduced that australian style deal uh australian side deal sorry australian points-based system i should say so we'd originally thought of asking what the government can do about this issue and what would have public support but it sounds like we've kind of talked about that that the public's not massively bothered about this and what the public would support is essentially what we have now so let's talk about something um, 
that is an, a policy around migration that does a reasonably high sort of public profile, and that is the Rwanda scheme. So can you tell us what the public think about the Rwanda scheme? Um, so I think voters, you know, might have become more liberal on migration, but they haven't lacked on the type of rules that expect to govern entry to the UK. Actually, if you look at the they were kind of sceptical of that scheme's viability from when it was first announced. So I think around 40% of people uh, support the idea in principle. Basically, it's important to look at the fact that this is a public or an electorate that's been burned multiple times by politicians who claim they'll be able to fix this issue and then don't deliver on it. You know, sticking a slogan on a podium is pretty easy, but they actually just don't see these uh, systems or these proposals as feasible. And again, as I was kind of touching on, I think earlier, even if evidence of that is produced, so even if the scheme somehow does work, which it doesn't look likely because of, you know, the legal challenges and the difficulty that even EU countries who work together, um, you know, in kind of cross alignment on these issues have faced in trying to stop small boats crossing the channels and have found it impossible. You know, this scheme is probably pretty unlikely to actually work, but it also just doesn't animate people in the same way that it used to particularly because they don't think it's going to work anyway so as we draw this this bit of the discussion to a close i want to ask you where the political parties are on migration and just how the how you think their positioning matches up with where the public are the the public are actually more liberal on this than either of the two main political parties are you know we talk quite a lot in um you know, political research and stuff and public policy about the thermostat, the policy thermostat and uh, politicians taking the lead from the public. And I think this is actually something where they've not quite done that. Um, I think it would benefit both the parties actually to take a bit more of a nuanced and longer term view on this issue, uh, particularly because the political context is just so different than it was a few years ago. You know, the Conservatives aren't facing that same electoral challenge from a party like Reform or UKIP or whatever it is which essentially means that immigration is not actually as important to a lot of their voters as I think people in Westminster think. And actually going more hardline on it could alienate more, the more moderate voters and kind of, you know, see to be Lib Dems or challengers. It could alienate voters there. Um, and then for Labour, I think, you know, they've been burned by this subject so many times before and it's an issue that they're quite hesitant to talk about, particularly because it kind of splits their core base in two. Um, but I think it's actually they should see it as a good thing that being a bit more liberal on this issue won't hinder them in the same way that it has in the past. It looks like they'll still keep their focus on other issues. I think the only time they've really talked about it is about reliance on foreign-born workers as opposed to sort of uh, UK-based workers. Um, but realistically, overall, public confidence in both of the banking parties remains really low. Um, you know, producers have pretty little faith in the ability of either main party to deal with the issue of migration. Um, so, you know, another failed attempt to curb, to curb it is not really likely to work in either party's favour. So they are in a position where both can take a bit more of a liberal approach, but whether they'll want to take that risk and it kind of blow up in the face at a time when the public are already doubting their ability to deal with the issue. Um, I think that would be the question. Yeah, I think you put your finger on something possibly quite important there, because you mentioned kind of Tory Lib Dem marginal seats. But it seems like both the Conservatives and Labour are thinking about the so-called red wall type seats where supposedly, and people we've talked to have told us this, that 
issues like the small boats, issues of this kind are a bit more salient, are a bit more in play, and they're looking for a certain kind of voter to swing the the seat one way or another. It might be, as you suggest, they're overplaying that a bit, but that's my best guess at um, what's going on anyway. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's one of those things where, because as you mentioned earlier, it is it has historically been such a divisive issue, particularly illegal migration. Um, that in a way you do risk, if you go big on that policy, you do risk kind of splitting your voter base and alienating some voters for the sake of others. So I think it's just an electoral choice that both parties are going to have to make. Now, I wanted to finish on a slightly different note, which is around the role of local government. Now, you've written and spoken about local government in the past, so... And some people will talk about uh, immigration in terms of the impact on local areas, local services. So can you just give us a little bit of an overview, an introduction to the sort of layout of local government for any listeners who aren't particularly familiar with it? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't blame uh, anyone for kind of not quite getting how local government works, because I think when I started first kind of trying to look into it I, I was a bit overwhelmed by actually just how complicated it is um and in the UK we do have this weird system where we've had so many sort of piecemeal small reforms to government structures since sort of the 1970s really that we've ended up with this weird layered system of kind of mergers and sharing of powers and responsibilities that makes it pretty difficult to understand so in the UK we've got this mix of thousands of local authorities they're all different kind of shapes, sizes, remits, electoral cycles. They've all got different governance structures. You know, some have mayors, some don't. Some have cabinet structure. Some have a directly elected mayor. Some work with metro mayors as well. And, you know, that all comes with different responsibilities, but actually all different financial structures as well. All local government uh, authorities have access to lots of different pots of money at different times and have different um kind of remits when it comes to finances in the local area and I think it's actually something that doesn't get enough attention because local authorities are really important they have quite a lot of power and responsibility over really important public services which people use daily you know from it's not just taking the bins out or potholes anymore it's things like social care like environmental issues um but the entanglement of the system we've got at the minute makes it really difficult to understand um, and I think that's partly because no government has really been brave enough to recognise that this is actually probably a system that we need to kind of raise and start building again. And that's a pretty difficult task. And does a kind of almost worked example like immigration tell us about how we can go from this kind of global issue of immigration to the very immediate day-to-day issue? And is there a kind of lack of alignment between the sort of the scale of the challenge and we talk about immigration we sort of related to that is um housing local services we've had labor's recent announcement about being open to building on the green belt uh we talked in a recent podcast about the the housing waiting lists in uh, a particular london borough in that case lewisham so is there an institution in local government as it is now that is just not sort of set up to be able to tackle some of the challenges that, for example, uh, immigration is throwing up? I think so. I think, obviously, it's one of these things where 
so much about this policy and about how and who can enter the country is set in Westminster, but quite often ends up being local authorities who have to deal with that on the ground in dealing with things like, you know, social care, housing, um, the the few powers they've got left over education and things like that. They kind of have to deal with how it plays out on the ground. And I think the thing that I've come across, which I think makes it particularly difficult to for local authorities to plan long term and think about how they're going to deal with issues like this is the way that a lot of the funding works. Your average local authority doesn't actually have that much financial power in terms of you know how it raises revenues, how it taxes businesses and properties in its area. A lot of that is centralised and the money that they do have control of actually comes in lots of small pots which last for different amounts of time and might need to be competitively bidded for so you know they're under no guarantee that they'll actually get it and that makes it really hard to plan especially you know if they're projecting you know maybe some London local authorities for example are projecting that because of the reforms to the migration system they're going to see um large flows of my migrants with children or families or whatever and they would like to plan Uh, local services ahead of time the funding structure makes it actually really difficult to do that and so I think it it, this dreams of nature does really play out on the ground I think that's such a good point to to end it on on the inability to plan because of the the funding structures and all the various different bits and parts so Sophie thank you so much for uh, agreeing to tackle what I thought was going to be such a difficult issue but it sounds like there might be a, a centre ground that's actually quite wide uh, on the issue of immigration that so many thought been so divisive for so long. So, yeah, I hope so. I hope it means we can have a bit more of a nuanced discussion about it going forward. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Sophie. It was really good of you to come on. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Martin. And thanks again, Sophie. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And thank you very much for listening. This has been the No Man's Land podcast. And goodbye.